Gay Mitchell Meets, a series of unique interviews with prominent people in public life. These interviews go beyond the normal soundbite and provide real analysis of issues in public affairs. In this episode, Gay Mitchell talks to economist and former Secretary of the Labour Party, Brendan Halligan. Welcome, Brendan Halligan, former General Secretary of the Labour Party, Senator, TD and MEP, and founding president of the Institute of International and European Affairs. It's very good to have the opportunity to talk to you, Brendan. What brought you into politics? I have no idea, to be (laughs) perfectly honest. Uh, I can say one or two incidents, but um, I was always inclined like that, even when I was a a very young teenager. And I got involved in... uh, the cooperative movement very early on, uh, community development in an urban setting, of course, uh, to a great extent in the area where we're sitting down having this interview, uh, Donor Avenue and so on. And it was just a, a natural progression. I joined the Labour Party as an ordinary member in my late teens. And then uh, for various reasons, I, I I went away, including other things. But I came when I came back. I um, re- renewed my involvement in the in the uh, cooperative movement, and that led me naturally into uh, the Labour Party. And from there on, it just got more intense. Well, what are your favourite memories of the Labour Party? You've been there for a long time. Well, it was a community. Uh, it was big enough to be to be significant, but small enough to be intimate. So you knew practically everybody in the party all over the entire country. And there probably would have, would have been about five, 6,000 active members. I'm not saying I knew them all, but I certainly knew a fair share of them. And it had a rhythm to the year. Uh, for example, the annual conference in the Labour Party was a very big gig. And it was taken terribly seriously. Uh, and it was over three days of a weekend and it was sort of the highlight of the year and it was a combination of everything, politics and socialising and uh, having a good time, but also some very serious stuff. And I suppose in many ways it's the party conference uh, would be my, conferences would be my biggest memory. And uh, there were very dramatic things at these conferences. Uh, One, uh, Brennan Corish gave a, a speech which is included in the 50 best speeches ever given in Ireland, which I helped to write in uh, 1967. And uh, we had a very dramatic uh, conference in 1970 about whether or not we were going to coalition with Fine Gael. That nearly sundered the party. And then, of course, there were a whole series of uh, conference debates on a very emotional question uh, about support for the IRA. Uh, you know, Fine Gael was very clear where it stood. Uh, the Fine Fáil were ambivalent, let me put it like that. It had its big row on the RDS, uh, where it nearly split apart on that matter. And the Labour Party was the arena inside which the Irish public, as it were, the thinking public, debated this uh, and ultimately came down very clearly and uh, definitively in favour of uh, a peaceful approach, constitutional approach to Northern Ireland and utmost opposition to the Sinn Féin and political violence. A lot of that was sorted out at a party conference. They're my happiest memories. Around that time, there was, I think, 1970, the arms trial and all of that. Did that push Labour towards Fine Gael at the time? The arms trial had a dramatic effect. There's no question about that. Uh, we just immediately changed your mind about the coalition. 
Brendan Corish was a an instinctive politician. Uh, he had no formal education in the sense of university or whatever, but he was a, a way ahead of most people in terms of political intelligence, and he just understood immediately uh, that we had to provide a, an alternative in order to preserve democracy. Now, we had a party that was very bitterly divided as to whether it would go into coalition or not. So this was going to require a lot, uh, very skillful engineering and navigating. Uh, and he had a small group around him. Here's another happy memory of this group, which would have at that stage included uh, Michael O'Leary, of course, who was a brilliant politician, uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien, Justin Keating, uh, Frank Klusky, and I'm happy to say myself, and this group collectively made a decision, I remember, at lunch in the National Gallery, which then, at that point, had a very nice restaurant. Uh, and we then had to wait the opportunity for bringing that to the party uh, for a decision. And it was precipitated by uh, a vote of no confidence that um, Fine Gael tabled uh, in the then Minister for Defence, uh, Gibbons. And the assumption was that Charlie Hawkey couldn't vote for Gibbons. And of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> but we had to be ready for it because we were bound by a party decision not to go into coalition. Now, we had to unbind ourselves, but only by a party conference. And we called a special conference, which was, which I decided would be held in Cork. I took it out of Dublin for obvious reasons. So we took that decision in December 1970. And uh, we were then ready for going into coalition when the opportunity arose. So yes, it was a dramatic in terms of its impact. I sat beside Brendan Corish in the Dáil restaurant on my first day in the Dáil. He was a very nice man and a very Wonderful, interesting man. Lovely man. But tell us a bit about, I mean, well, at least the party leaders who have passed on, who are no longer mm. with us, Brendan Corish, Frank Kluski, yeah. um, Mick O'Leary. Michael O'Leary, and indeed one who wasn't the leader, Conor Cruz O'Brien. Was, yeah. was it a strange thing for Conor Cruz O'Brien to join the Labour Party, given some of the opinions he held? Well... Well, let me start with Connor. How I recruited Connor was to go through Michael McInerney, who was down the political correspondent of the Irish Times. We had lunch in Michael's flat up in Donnybrook uh, with his wife, Nancy. And uh, I spent probably about two, two and a half hours with Connor explaining what was happening and what the future would hold for the Labour Party and, uh, and that we wanted him to be part of it. And he said yes at the end of the interview without any humming and hawing equivocation about it. He was in New York at the time teaching at New York University. So we went back to New York and I said, you, you know, when you come back again, I will have secured a nomination for you. Not knowing in the name of God how I was going to do it. <laughs> but <laughs> myself and the party chairman, who was a wonderful, wonderful guy, Dan Brown, you probably knew Dan, him. yeah. Yeah, Dan was a Lord Mayor and so on. Yeah. Was from, uh, National Union of Vehicle Builders, a tough yeah. man. So Dan and I anyway set out to find, a, find him a home. And by accident, we got him one because Dennis Larkin, who was the sitting D TD in Dublin North East, said he wouldn't stand again. He was going to run the Workers' Union. So there was the vacancy. Uh, Connor, great intellect, uh, didn't suffer fools gladly, as you know. But I have to say this about him, which is a side that's not seen. Uh, great fun. Absolutely hilarious guy to be with. The centenary of his birth is coming up later this year and we're going to celebrate it, a number of us who worked with him, simply on the basis of friendship. Uh, Justin Keating was a somewhat different animal, uh, much more clinical, uh, convinced Marxist, uh, also Republican, with a small R, 
but one of the most brilliant minds uh, I've ever come across and also an extremely nice man. And what about Declan Costello and Gareth Fitzgerald? Were they tempted? They were most certainly tempted. Both of them said exactly the same thing to me. I, I, afterwards, I thought that, of course, they had orchestrated it between them. But they both said they couldn't do it because of the fathers. Uh, Gareth said my father would revolve in his grave. And, uh, of course, Declan's father was still alive and took an active role in preventing him from joining the party. But we had... Um, we had a very close relationship and Garrett had actually taught me in, in, uh, in UCD so I had known him since mm-hmm. 1959 uh, and we were very close and I got very, very close to Declan Costello. Now just to say to you that ultimately that group including Garrett and, and, uh, and Declan and Alexis Fitzgerald and Jim Doog all of whom I loved very much we formed an ad hoc group uh, on the Labour Party side it was Justin uh, and uh, Connor, Mick, uh, and myself, with the benediction of Brendan Corrish. Not eight people met constantly to plan something. And the media, or nobody ever, ever, ever copped it. I never, I never found out about it. Well, that brings us on nicely to most of those people, if not all of the names you've mentioned. Indeed, Alexis Fitzgerald was even at the cabinet table, or he wasn't a member yes, of cabinet. Yes, he was. But the, the, the politicians, your politicians you mentioned, all ended up in government together yes. in the, what was called the National Coalition, 73 yes. to 77. Some would say probably one of the most talented governments of all time. What's your view of that? Oh, I would say the most talented government of all time. And we've left out a name, uh, uh, Tom O'Higgins, for example, yeah. who was very central to all this, and who was... Uh, a great friend of Brennan Corrish. I mean, it's very hard for academics or, or media to understand the, the dynamics at, 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 at political level. Liking somebody is critical. Being a friend of somebody is critical. And uh, Tom O'Higgins and Brennan Corrish were the closest of friends. So um, it was an amazing government. Uh, it had three huge problems immediately, which we, you know, which analysts would immediately recognise within space of two and a half months of the government coming into office, we were involved in Ireland's membership of the then European Economic Community being put in place. And by a stroke of good fortune, for which we will eternally be grateful, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald was appointed by Liam Cosgrave as Foreign Minister and really shaped Ireland's uh, European policy ever since. I've written a long lecture uh, about that, a small state and a large union, it's called. The other thing, of course, um, that it had to deal with was uh, we were no, we were not, came to office in mid-March uh, and at the end of November, beginning of December, we had the first oil shock. And um, I can remember saying to Brendan uh, about two months afterwards, uh, I said, look, this constitutes the biggest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. The West is going to go into serious decline. We'd better start telling the public and most particularly the party uh, what's involved here. It was a whole public education thing, which Corish did, now reluctantly, but did very successfully and brought the unions on board, which was an amazing achievement. Because there was no trouble during that whole period. And, of course, the third huge challenge uh, was the IRA and all that went with it. And um, in the middle of that, let's not forget, we had the, the bombs in Dublin. There were 26 people leaving, losing their lives, six people in Monaghan. Uh, I was in the party head office when I heard the bombs going off on Friday afternoon. Terrifying period. Mm. Uh, kidnappings, Harriman being kidnapped, a, a Dutch businessman. Terrifying period. Uh, inside which the cabinet was under death threat, which we did not make public, uh, in which people like myself and Frank Klusky wound up under special branch protection. Uh, 
so this wasn't funny, to say the least. No. But, uh, and it's managing all of those as well as running the normal stuff of, of politics and, uh, and, and governmental business. I, I was a boy Wonderful. around that time and was involved. It was Declan Costler that attracted yeah. myself and my brother into politics. But I remember there was a by-election in, um, in Monaghan. Um, Billy Fox had been assassinated around that time, Correct. Senator Billy Fox. But I remember that cabinet ministers had to have double armed guards oh, yeah. campaigning. People don't realise that that was the oh, case. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, they don't realise this. Uh, I, I can remember being on a platform at party conference, I think it was in Galway, middle of the Saturday afternoon, I get a message, Gardaí have said we have to evacuate immediately, there's a bomb threat. Uh, and I said, no, we're not. Uh, my judgment is that it's a hoax and I'm not going to succumb to these people anyway. Uh, and we're not moving. But, you know, that was the atmosphere inside which you live and there were armed guardy all around the, around the place. And, of course, the Sunningdale Agreement was one of the crowning achievements of that government. Following on, it has to be said, the work of the previous government, but the Sunningdale Agreement was a great achievement. Well, I wouldn't give any credit for the previous government for about Sunningdale. I must be perfectly honest about it. About it. Uh, I think Sunningdale was born out of the fact that the... the then British Prime Minister Ted Heath uh, had met with uh, Liam Cosgrave and Brendan Corrish seven days before we went took up office. He invited us over to London. Uh, I went with Brendan and Liam. And uh, they met in Downing Street. There was only four of them in the room. Uh, or They had dinner together. The other was Sir Alec Douglas Hume, who was Foreign Secretary. And former Prime Minister. And former Prime Minister. And there was a bond created between the four of them that night that withstood everything. And Heath made a judgment, which was, I can trust these two guys. In fact, as Brendan told me afterwards, the four of them drank whiskey, they were, and two of them fell asleep. There was Heath and, and Liam fell asleep, and he was left with Alex Douglas Hume and Trotter. Brendan was a great whiskey drinker. But the four of them formed that bond, and they trusted each other, and the Sunningdale thing started almost immediately. And Conor Cruz was very central to this, to negotiating it. Uh, and Garrett, of course. Uh, Sunningdale, uh, you know, James Mellon famously said that subsequent agreements were Sunningdale for slow learners. But Sunningdale was, was destroyed by a combination of Ian Paisley on the one hand, who was dreadful, uh, and the IRA on the other. And I think about 2,000 lives were lost before we got back to Sunningdale. Extraordinary. And what um, could have been achieved in that 30... I was very 30. close to uh, Jerry Fitz, uh, who was the leader of the SDLP and the Deputy uh, first, first Minister. And I know how it would have worked. He had a, a wonderful working relationship with Brian Faulkner, of all people. Uh, very open and honest. And uh, in fact, their offices were opposite to each other. And Faulkner said on day one, uh, we'll do a deal. We'll never close our doors. You can see who's going into, coming into me and I'll see who's going into you and boom, boom. And they both ran extremely well. But that could have worked, but it was destroyed by Paisley, most particularly, as you know. Um, you mentioned uh, Gareth Fitzgerald's appointment as foreign minister. Liam Cosgrave as Taoiseach was an extraordinary man. Everybody expected Gareth would be finance minister and Richie Ryan would be, would be a foreign minister, but he, 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 he switched them. Um, but the working relationship between... Liam Cosgrave and Brendan Corrish seems to have been uh, exceptional. It was exceptional. Uh, a, again, I go back to, to people liking each other. They liked each other. And I remember some one of the journalists saying, asking me, um, well, what do they talk about when they're, when they're together? 
I said, but that's easy you know, to talk about racing, talk about horses. So that a common interest in horses. I mean, Brendan Corrish backed every day. Uh, small amount of money, but he backed every day. Very like Jerry Fitt, who backed horses every single day as well. Um, they completely trusted each other, uh, as they liked each other. Uh, and there was never any competition and the sec- between them. And the secret of Liam Cosgrave's Taoiseach ship was that he gave you more than you thought you were entitled to. So this is a superb way of managing a relationship. So, for example, no matter what way you looked at it, on the basis of the number of seats we had, either in the Dáil or the Shannon or whatever, or share of the vote, we were only entitled to four seats in the Cabinet, mathematically. Uh, and I remember that they met on the Monday after the election at half past two in the afternoon, uh, and I had geared Brendan up for all, with all sorts of arguments as to why we should have five blah, blah, and et cetera. Uh, and half an hour after leaving him, I got a phone call. Uh, I said, come up, come up to the office now immediately. I said, what's, what, 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 what's happened? This talk's broken. No. He said, come up and I'll tell you. He said, before I opened my mouth, Liam said, before we start, you have five seats in the cabinet. You can have uh, the Department of Finance personally. If you don't take it, I'll have it. Uh, and then we'll work out what the other seats are. Very good way of doing business. Wasn't it? Um, and you mentioned the the oil crisis. Inflation was enormous. But despite that, Brendan Corrish, as Minister of Health and Social Welfare, was able to agree with Richie Ryan that social welfare increases would keep pace. And they brought down the old age pension from 70 each year to each 66 year, yeah. in the middle year. of all of uh, that yeah. crisis. But that that was a difficult process agreeing that to get that done, was it? Yes and no. Uh, the re- key relationship there was between Frank Klusky and uh, Richie Ryan. Uh, they were both, um, shall we say, spiky. Uh, they had both served on Dublin City Council together. I served in the same constituency. <laughs> <laughs> and they hopped off each other a little. Twice they brought the government to the brink. Uh, but in each case, you know, we weren't going over. We weren't going to go over the edge. On one occasion, Brendan said to me, "Look, we're in trouble here, and the party conference will vote us out of government unless Frank Klusky gets the increases that he's looking for." Uh, and he had me go to Liam Cosgrave and go to all the Fine Gael ministers, which I did, telling them the story. And Liam Cosgrave sorted out the problem by a brilliant piece of political engineering, which is a long story, uh, which I'd be happy to tell you in the pub. But just to say that he, Liam Cosgrave did that and those two men then went off uh, and buried the hatchet together in the, in Buzzbill's hotel and we're all at the gate looking at them saying, the pair of you, the trouble you're at the causing us. But you're right, it was done every year. Uh, there, was, there were increases more or less kept uh, in line with inflation, brought the uh, the, the old age pension aged down but don't forget to introduce a raft of, of, of other reforms uh, particularly for women and every amazing. tax law was, was reformed Sorry? every tax law wealth tax yeah. corporation tax capital yeah. gains tax capital acquisitions tax we brought in three, three capital taxes reformed, yeah. Yeah. and Richie opposed them privately uh, at the cabinet table but when the decision was made Liam Cosgrave said look the Labour Party needs this we're going to do it as soon as that was done, Richie said, OK, that's the Cabinet decision, and fought for it like a tiger. And uh, I can remember that whole passage uh, of legislation 
about the most ferocious opposition for Fianna Fáil. I remember the late John Kelly telling me that people he hadn't seen since he was at primary school were contacting him telling oh, yeah. him how they opposed uh, some oh, of the yeah. legislation. Let's turn back Another to Another great the, man, John Kelly. He was extraordinary man. Let's turn back to the EU or the then EEC. Uh, yeah. We had the first presidency during that government as well, as far as I can, I think, in any event. Oh, we um, did, yes. Yeah. What was wasn't that an extraordinary step forward for Ireland the moving into the European economic community? Would you agree that we really became sovereign the day we joined the European Union? There's no question about that. No question whatsoever. Uh, Garrett uh, put it brilliantly in an article uh, that was in the Irish Times. He used to write, as you recall, twice a week before he became a minister <laughs> for the Irish Times. Uh, he said uh, membership would be psychological liberation. And it's only somebody with his background uh, and insights could have said that. And that's precisely what it was. We became sovereign today that we stepped into the council room uh, as an equal of, of Britain. Up to that, we were a supplicant. We were a mendicant. We were, the in, in diplomatic terms, we were the always the demon there. We were the one looking for something. And there's no question that I'm not criticising the English uh, as distinct from the British, but it was it was in their nature and their history had formed them in a certain way, but they treated us with a certain amount of disdain. Uh, you might even say contempt on occasion. But um, what we tried to say, look, we, had a, we have a direct interest here in Northern Ireland and we're telling you what's happening and we're asking you to do this, that and the other. In 1969, and most particularly in 1970, we were virtually thrown out of the offices. I remember going into Whitehall uh, with Brendan, meeting the junior minister at the Home Office who was responsible for Northern Ireland, and um, Lord Stonham, who actually was a trade union official, uh, Victor Carton by name, had practically been thrown, turfed out. Now, what membership of the EEC did was it put us uh, at least formally uh, on, 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 a, on an equal footing with them. Uh, and we then also began, anyway, to express ourselves, most particularly through Garrett. And you're right to say the first European Council meeting, first European Council meeting was held here in Dublin with Liam Cosgrave chairing it. And don't forget that we also helped to solve the problem for, for uh, Harold Wilson, who had stupidly committed himself, if elected, uh, to the holding a referendum. And he basically said, look, I've got myself into a hole. Can you dig me out of it? And so we came up with an imaginary formula which said that he had renegotiated the terms of, of Britain's membership and that went to a referendum in the mid-70s mid and was carried. So we were immediately involved in doing lots of very important things. And uh, Garrett, don't forget, um, conducted the first Lomé agreements. So the former colonies of Britain and uh, France essentially were brought into the development pool. Huge achievement. And only an Irish minister could have done that. Because he said, look, we were colonised too. Anyway, he was brilliant at what it was he was doing. Um, and so on. You then founded the Institute of International and European Affairs to advocate the sort of views you've just expressed. What, what brought that about? Well, what brought it about directly was the uh, Single European Act of 1985. Uh, and there was... Um, Quite a lot of opposition to it, even though the, the Labour Party were in, were in government at the time, with uh, with Fine Gael, obviously. Uh, so we were negotiating the conclusion of the Single European Act, but um, 
as you may recall then, it, its constitutionality was tested in the High Court. I was Director of Elections for that, mm, believe okay. it or not, going mm. back to that. And yeah. we thought we just, I mean, yes. the, the constitutional case caught everybody by surprise. Yes, yes, it did. Uh, and, I, and, and I think the decision of the Supreme Court to this day, I think it was wrong. I mean, really seriously silly wrong. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, so we had a we had a, a referendum. Now, as you recall, the turnout was very low; it was about forty-four uh, percent. And while it was carried two to one, I said to myself, "Oh, this this ain't good." And there are going to be more referenda now as a consequence of the Supreme Court decision. So we better have a better level of debate than we have just had. The level of debate was appalling, which it has been ever since, of course. Uh, so, uh, so I concocted the idea of having a place inside which our membership of the then European Economic Community could be discussed objectively and infor- and 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 uh, informed in and an informed way. So to set up a think tank, uh, which is what we did, and Garrett was very heavily involved in it, became president of it later. Jim Doug was central to its formation. Uh, but it was all party and I had all of the uh, social partners involved and engaged. So it's a premier think tank now uh, in Europe and has an international reputation, thankfully. It's very difficult when you go through the various referenda, you know, Single European Act, Maastricht, Amsterdam, Lisbon, Nice. Um, it's very difficult to engage people in the debate on the serious matter of Europe. And that leads me on to the Brexit issue. The same in Britain. I mean, I recall in one <coughs> referendum here, John Bruton being told by a constituent, if you get those trucks moved from the end of the cul-de-sac, yeah, sure. vote yes. And I think a lot of that played a part in the Brexit referendum, people who had difficulties with the British government voting to go out. But what about Brexit? It's a, I mean, they're going ahead with it now. What are your concerns? What do you see as the opportunities? Would... Would you share a view I've expressed that this could be the best opportunity for Ireland since 1922? Well, funny enough, I would. Absolutely. Uh, Now, a lot of people don't see it like that. But um, I've said uh, that this is... We're finally cutting the umbilical cord with Britain. And again, I'm going back in the sense that Garrett's saying it was a psychological liberation to join the EEC... It was half of, or maybe three quarters of, of a psychological liberation. But the remaining bit has got to be done. We've, we've, we're like the, the little bird has been thrown out of the nest now and we have to learn to fly on our own. And we haven't flown on our own. But I think anyway, uh, until now, and I think in life that's sometimes uh, an unexpected challenge that seems to be beyond your capacity to respond to is the best thing that ever happens to you. But this is certainly true in business. But sometimes if somebody is promoted into a job, there's only the, the promoter sees that they have the potential. Now, I think that this will cause uh, a, a revolution in thinking here, in particular as to how we relate to the rest of the world in terms of business. Uh, so I think it's the most wonderful thing that has happened. I, I wish I was younger to take advantage of it, but I'm not. But I think from my, from my, uh, my children, and most particularly from my grandchildren, this has been a, a wonderful thing to have happened. You know, in 1973 uh, and uh, now, 2017, uh, we have increased our standard of living in real terms, and some real terms, I'm not saying now as an economist, by 400%. 
this is unbelievable. Never in our history have we experienced uh, such a growth. Uh, this is the place to live, to be. Now, this is the time. Now, in all the history of the Irish people, this is the time to be alive now and here, uh, especially in Dublin 8. Pe- but people don't remember this, but when I moved into where I'm living now, first a journalist lived nearby, and shortly after I moved in, polls went up for putting in foams in the area. And there was going to be, he thought, a major scandal because a TD was getting a phone. In fact, the house I got already had a phone in it. But people don't realise that you were you had to wait for five years for a phone. We had no motorways. People were being killed every weekend. So, I mean, the sort of things you, you mentioned, the way society has changed. But this is going to bring with it its challenges. With Brexit, there'll be probably further European integration. There will. And this may give rise to, for example, the issue of defence commitments. Correct. Uh, is that a challenge we're going to face? There's no question about that. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to need help to accommodate to the new economic circumstances of Brexit. We are the most exposed, the most vulnerable economy in terms of British withdrawal. We're six times more dependent on the British market than any other member state. I think no matter what way you look at it, we're going to require assistance, something equivalent to what we what Jack Lynch got in 1979 when we joined the European Monetary System. So whether it's soft loans or, or straightforward cohesion fund type funding, I don't know, but we certainly are going to need this. So we're going to be looking for solidarity. Now, but solidarity is a two-way street, and we'd better express solidarity. And I think the key area is in, is in security and defence. Uh, and I don't think we can, can continue legitimately to be a free rider in defence. And we've got to be part of the common defence of the organisation to which we belong. Now, interestingly, and, this, and, and it is a historic fact that in January 1962, when Sean Lamas went to Brussels to formally lodge the, well, talk to uh, the Irish application to join the European Economic Community. We had already had a letter in some months earlier. He said two things to the, to the ministers of the six member states then. He said, one, we're not looking for any money. Oh dear. Uh, and secondly, we will contribute to the defense of the organization of which we're going to, uh, of which we're going to become a member. Now, of course, we looked for as much money as we could get, and we never joined in common defence. And we're going to have to do that. I wonder, have we allowed ourselves to be brainwashed into seeing this as a challenge when really, again, it might be an opportunity. We need defence cover ourselves, and we don't fund our own defence forces sufficiently. So it's not all challenge, it's opportunity as well. Look, Europe is confronted by two serious uh, security threats. One is from Russia, whether one likes it or not. Uh, and the Russians are, have become, I don't want to say quite bolshy, but that's exactly what it, what it is they are. But they have become extraordinarily difficult. And who knows when a wrong mistake, you know, a mistake can be made and the wrong, wrong decision taken at any given point. Uh, and we've seen the Ukraine and you know, they're certainly giving huge trouble in the Baltic area and so on and so forth. But the other is, of course, is Islamic terrorism, which ain't going to go away. So that's, there's a distinction between defence and security. But we need to be involved in both at the core and to understand the linkage between the two. And ultimately, it is in our own self-interest that uh, we should do so, of course. Can I ask you, 
A final question, Brendan Halligan. In a generation's time, where do you think Ireland will be and where do you think the European Union will be? I'm absolutely convinced that the European Union will have uh, deepened its level of internal cooperation. I mean, the academics call that, you know, call that uh, for the deepening of integration. Uh, There will be a single European economy, in my view. There will be new institutions, including a European finance minister. there will be common policies, in, certainly in areas like uh, like energy that are meaningful, say in terms of energy security, which is utterly and absolutely essential. Uh, but there will also be a fiscal union, and a fiscal union it will involve transfers. Our German friends will have to come to terms with that ultimately. But we're going to have to come to terms again as, as a matter of uh, solidarity uh, on corporate taxes. Uh, we can't uh, uh, be the you know the the dog in the manger here. And I think we've got to be part of that. Um, I suspect that the European Union will also have taken onto itself a reasonably strong and persuasive, in terms of deterrence, uh, defence capacity. At the moment, we're all free riding uh, on the United States. It's the only point I think our President Trump happens to be right. But I think uh, we've got to get out of that. I think we have to uh, learn to defend ourselves. And Finally, to say about the future of the European Union, it will, by 25 years from now, uh, have encompassed the Balkans in their totality. And I think that is the ultimate guarantee of peace within Europe uh, to have solved that problem, particularly Serbia and so on. And Ireland's place in all of this? Well, hopefully where Gareth Fitzgerald placed it in 1973, uh, right at the core, and uh, where we have been ever since. So, yes. Brendan Halligan, has been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure as well. Thank you. Gay Mitchell Meets, a series of unique interviews with prominent people in public life. These interviews go beyond the normal soundbite and provide real analysis of issues in public affairs. Gay Mitchell Meets is a unique media production.